We're reading from Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 to 4. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all these statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, good morning and welcome. And if it's your first time with us here this morning, it's great to have you here at City Light. And just so you know, you won't be tested on the books of the Bible before you leave or anything like that. Um, but uh, thanks to Josh for putting that together. It's a great thing to do. And the, the, um, the leaders who are a part of our City Kids ministry do an amazing job teaching them week in and week out. And it's fitting, actually, that we would do that on this particular week because we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture in the book of Deuteronomy which is one of the books of the Bible in the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at this passage in Deuteronomy where God calls his people to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and also to pass it on to the next generation, to love God with a passion and to pass that passion on. And this matters because we do live in an age defined by, in many ways, indifference. I've been reading recently Aldous Huxley's book, Brave New World, and it's part of a, just a campaign I have to go back and revisit books that I hated and had to read in high school as part of the curriculum to see whether or not they were as bad as I thought or whether it was just me being annoying at the time. But reading through this book, it's an, it's an interesting vision of the future. If you don't know anything about this book, it was, um, it was written quite a while ago um, in the early, sort of mid parts of the 20th century. And it was his vision of kind of a dystopian future. But his vision was not that it would be this wasteland, this post-apocalyptic wasteland of pain, but actually it would be this wasteland of pleasure. That actually what would define the future is that actually it would be incredibly saturated with all kinds of pleasures. And they describe the world that they live in as a place with no leisure from pleasure. Whenever people are bored or uncomfortable or don't know what to do with themselves, they can dose themselves up with a thing called soma, which again, quote unquote, has all the benefits of alcohol and Christianity, but none of the defects. It's a religionless world, but it's also a passionless existence. And one of the characters, Bernard, starts to become increasingly frustrated with this reality and this existence that everyone is bought into. And he's looking for something more significant. And at one point it says he had wondered what it would be like to be subjected, drugless and with nothing but his own inward resources to rely on, how what it would be like to be subjected to some great trial, some pain, some persecution. He had even longed for affliction. So his character starts to long for something real. In this world where everything is defined by effortless pleasure, he wants something real, something that he might even want to suffer for. Some kind of relief from a life merely addicted to ease. Something that would awaken real and deep emotions. And the caution of this tale is that a life driven by only avoiding suffering is not a life at all. That actually a soul needs something more than that. We need something worth going after. Something that we love with all our heart, soul, mind and strength that we would even be willing to sacrifice for because it is that good. And and that... 
really the society, if it's unchecked in the pursuit of technology and ease, and access to easy pleasure will lead to a life that has neither pain nor passion, a bland existence and an apathy. The calling in this scripture in Deuteronomy 6 is that God's people are called to a strong love, to love God with everything you have, to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all that he has given you, with all that's at your disposal, that love for God would not be a tepid, half-hearted thing, but an all-consuming passion for his name, and that his people would know him as something so good and so worthy, someone so good and so worthy that it's worth their whole life throwing into. That it wouldn't be the case that his people would be a dispassionate or half-hearted people. That they would love God. And so here's where we're going today. We're going to see that a passionate love for God leads to obedience to God. Then we're going to see that prosperity kills passion. And then we're going to see that we are called to pass on this passion. That if you know God and love God, you are called to pass on this love to the next generation. And so I'm going to pray that as we open God's word, he'd be showing us the depths of his love for us in Christ and giving us a heart to love him with all that we have. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would grab our attention this morning. May we know that we are here in the presence of a holy God, whose word is holy. And stir us by your spirit to a passionate faith. If anyone here feels as if their faith is just hanging by a thread, may you strengthen it. If anyone here is feeling sleepy in their faith, that you may quicken their soul. And Father, may you open the eyes of our heart this morning that we might see you as you are, behold you as you are, and worship you as you deserve. And we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, for context, if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, the book of Deuteronomy is called that because the word Judah in Greek refers to second and nomos refers to the law, and so it's the second giving of the law. The reason it's called this uh, is because God had called a people to himself starting with one man, Abraham. Abraham and his wife were too old to have children. God says, don't worry about it. I'm going to build a great nation out of you. In fact, you're going to have so many descendants, you wouldn't be able to count them. And he is faithful to his promise. And the two become three, become 12, become hundreds, become thousands, become hundreds of thousands. And eventually God's people have grown. And he's fulfilled his promise that they will become a great people. But because of a famine, they've moved to the land of Egypt. And as they have grown in number... The ruler of that land, Pharaoh, decides that these people have gone from being a people to a threat. And so in order to neutralize them as a threat, he enslaves an entire people group. But God determines that he will save these people by a mighty hand. And so he sends one man, Moses, who himself is not a very good public speaker, again to demonstrate that it's God who is going to be doing this. And he says to him, Moses, I'm going to send you before the, the greatest power in the known world, and through you, I'm going to save my people. And he does it. Miraculously, he brings his people out of Egypt and out of slavery. He takes them through a sea and parts it for them. And then he rescues his people. And after having rescued them, he takes them to a place called Mount Sinai and he gives them commandments. He says to them, look, this is how you're going to live. I'm going to give you a land. But before you get in here, this is kind of the pregame briefing. I'm going to tell you what kind of people you need to be like. And so he gives them the Ten Commandments, which are good and just laws about how his people are to live in the land. 
And he says to them, when you go into the land, this is how you're going to be different from the nations around you that are full of corruption and injustice and cruelty. You're going to be different from them so that people will know that you worship a real God, one who can really save. And so they agree and they go to go into the land and just before they're about to enter the promised land, they send in 12 spies to see what it's like. Two of them come back and be like, We've got this. God's with us. He brought us through a sea. He's fed us through the desert. We can do this. And the other ten say, no way. These people are way too big. We'll never make it. The people believe the ten instead of the two. And God says, all right, have it your way. If you don't want to go into land, you won't go into the land. Instead, you'll do burnouts in the desert for 40 years until this whole generation has passed away who didn't want to go in. And when there's a new generation, I'll give you the laws again and we'll try it over again. And so that's where we're up to in Deuteronomy. This is the, the second giving of the law. The God is going to say to his people, all right, as you were, we start again, back in your places. I'm going to read you through the law again. You will have heard this before. Some of you won't. And then we're going to enter the promised land. And so that's where we're up to. And the section we just passed through last week was on the Ten Commandments, if you were here with us, about what it is that God's people are to be like. The God's people are to love God, they're to make no idols. They're not to cheat, lie, kill, steal. That they're meant to choose life and to live God's way. And he says to them, look, there are two ways before you. You can either live my way and choose life and stay in the land, or you can live like the nations around you, and if you do that, I'll have to cast you out just like the nations around you. So choose life. And that's the context in which we walk into today's text as we look at Deuteronomy 6, 1-3. This is Moses continuing his speech about what God's people are meant to be like and what's meant to characterize them as God's people. And here he's going to lay out what really should be their defining characteristic. Look at what he says in Deuteronomy 6. It says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping his statutes and commandments which I command you all the days of your life, <coughs> by keep, uh, sorry, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you multi may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, look, you need to listen to God, and you need to obey his commandments, the ones that I've just laid out to you, and the ones that he's going to expand upon later in the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, do this, hear them, listen to them, live them out, and then pass them on to the next generation, to your sons and daughters and their sons and daughters and their sons and daughters, and on and on and on, that you would pass on this message and that you would pass it on to the following generations. And this is God's good plan for his people to live and to thrive in the land. But more than that, how are they going to do it? It really comes down to one sentence that he puts in there. Look what he says in Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down. And when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This section that we read here for the Hebrew people was called the Shema. And the reason for that is that's the first word. And it means listen, hear. And it says here, Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord is God. The Lord is one. And this is meant to define them from the nations around them. That they are meant to worship the only true living God. That all the gods of the nations around them are false gods. And he is saying to them, look, there is only one God. There is God and God alone. He is the one that you are to worship. And then he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The command here is to love. It's the most comprehensive way he could say, just love God with everything you've got. Here it literally kind of means to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and then with all of your muchness is kind of the, the less technical way to put it. But to love God with everything you've got, that he would be the one abiding and chief love of your heart, the thing that you love above all other things, an all-consuming passion, the thing that you love with everything you have. He says this is what's meant to mark you out from the people around you. But there's also some funny language in here, isn't there? I don't know if you noticed it. He says things, he keeps switching from singular to plural. In one sense he says, now this is the commandment, singular. And then he says, keep the statutes and rules, plural. And then what is, the one, what is it? Is it one command or is it many? We can think of it in this way. If you keep the one command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and might, then you'll keep all the others as well. In fact, I think it was Martin Luther, the great reformer, who said that if you don't break the first commandment, you'll keep all the rest. That is, if God is the God that you love, then you won't make idols. You won't lie, cheat, steal, all the other things. The one commandment that's upstream from all the rest is to love the Lord your God with everything you have. In fact, the way they kind of work together is kind of the positive and the negative to kind of trap the meaning in the middle. On the positive side, he's saying, in the affirmative, love God with everything you've got, and to explain what that means, there's all these do-nots in the Ten Commandments and also in the laws to say this is what it's going to look like to love God. But the truth is, there is one that's really upstream from them all. One command to rule them all, if you like. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. Everything else is downstream from that. And we know it because obedience is meant to flow from the heart. That following God is not merely about external obedience, but about loving God with your heart in a way that expresses itself also in the way that you behave. We know, we know that this is the case. A close walk with God is what leads to obedience. And you think of it in this way. When I was in, maybe it was in my early 20s, my uncle had gotten really sick and he'd gone to hospital and at first they weren't quite sure what was making him sick. They knew it was something in his blood that was somehow toxic that was causing a lot of his body to start shutting down. And so initially the way they treated it was by giving him blood transfusions. But realizing that this wasn't actually working, they realized that the problem had to have gone a lot deeper. And what they've discovered was that actually in, in my uncle's heart, under one of the valves, there was an infection. And so what that meant was that even if clean blood came into the heart, once it was pumped out, it would be toxic. And so it didn't matter how many transfusions he got, because all it would mean is that clean blood would come in and toxic blood would come out. Unless they addressed the thing right at the center of the issue, right in the middle of his heart, the infection that was there, it really wouldn't matter how many transfusions they made. That was the thing that was upstream from everything else. That was the central issue and central problem. In the same way, our behavior might be an indication that something has gone wrong, but it's gone wrong in our heart. 
The heart is upstream from everywhere else. That's why this command centers on the heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Your desires, your deepest desires, that those would be the things that are directed toward your God. And then from that, everything else in the life following God flows. But it is the case that obedience follows from a heart for God. When we have a passionate love for God, it leads us to obedience. The heart is upstream. And that's why Moses gives the warning that he gives next. Look what he says in Deuteronomy 6, preparing them to enter this land that they're going to enter into. It says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, and he is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Here Moses says that God is going to bring you into a land of ease. He says, I'm going to take you into a land that is pre-prepared for you. There'll be stuff there, there'll be vineyards that you didn't build, cisterns that you didn't dig or work for, houses to live in that you didn't build. All of this will be yours and you won't have done it for yourself. This will be the easiest life has been for Israel so far. And you know what's weird? He warns them against it. Surely you'd think if you were going to warn anyone, you'd be like, I'm going to warn you about the 40 years in the desert. That's the bad bit, right? That's the bit when you guys are going to turn away from me. But it's crazy. He actually warns them about the prosperity to come. He says, I'm worried about you because things are about to get real easy. And when things get easy, that is the time when your heart is most likely to go astray. Isn't that a strange and counterintuitive thing? But that's the warning that he has here for them. He says it's this time when things are easy and you're in the land flowing with milk and honey. That's the time when your heart's going to go after other idols. And when you're going to want to live like the nations that are around you, rather than my people who are set apart, who were rescued from slavery. And why? Because prosperity and pleasure numb us to God. Have you considered the numbing effect that has on the soul that we have so much ease available to us and so readily? Has anyone here, and look, maybe I'm, I'm reading it wrong, maybe you have a different experience, but has anyone here ever binge-watched a series and then walked away feeling really invigorated and energized for life? <laughs> you don't, do you? Now, that's, it's, it's rare maybe that you have the opportunity to actually sit down and watch that much TV in one go. I think the only time I've had to do that in the last decade was when I had COVID and I sat through an entire series or something just because I couldn't sleep. But it doesn't leave you kind of like invigorated or kind of, it, it doesn't enliven the soul in any way, does it? But now just imagine the drip, drip effect of having so much ease available to us all the time. Whenever I want food of any variety, I can get it like that. Whenever I'm bored or I feel uneasy, I've got a phone, I've got some socials that I can jump on to distract me. 
Whenever I don't know what to do with myself, there's endless amounts of entertainment that I can watch. And I don't even have to invest in it like with reading where I have to think about it. I can just sit there and be entertained. But over time, it wears away at the soul and it shrinks the soul to the size of small concerns. Because in the context of prosperity, we start to believe that our greatest need is to just feel good rather than to have an all-consuming passion for someone or something that matters. When we have all this pleasure at our disposal, we can indulge almost uninterrupted and start to believe that the main point of life is just to feel good all the time and to avoid feeling bad, that that is the central calling of our lives. And to forget that as followers of Christ, we were called to so much more. To know the God who has saved us, who has redeemed us, who made the heavens and the earth and yet knows us and loves us by name. Who knows, even it says in Scripture, the very hairs on your head. One who is worthy of the highest love, the greatest desires of our heart. An all-consuming love. A love that's the opposite of apathy. And one that actually invigorates the soul and enlarges the soul. And is willing to sacrifice for. This is what we're made for. But pleasure dims passion. And that's why Moses warns Israel, he says, look, you're going to go into this land and things for the first time are going to be real easy for you and it's going to be spiritually the most dangerous time in your history. That it's going to be the time when you are most likely to wander after other gods, to forget that it was the God of Israel who brought you out of the land of slavery, who saved you with a mighty hand, who redeemed you, not because you were more worthy than other people or because there was something special about you, but simply because he poured out his love upon you. So Moses warns them, and he warns them to do this. He says to take care, that is to to be on guard, to watch vigilantly, kind of like someone who is on sentry duty, someone who is looking out for an enemy. He says, take care, watch out, because when things get easy, that's when you're going to be most tempted to walk away from God. And the reason he says this is not just for your own soul, but for the next generation as well. Look what he says. It says, when your son asks you in time to come and says, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders and gr- a great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and against all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in And give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. He says, when your son or daughter, when the kids come up to you, the next generation say, why are we doing all this? Why do we live differently to the nations around us? Why do we do all this strange stuff? Why do we have a Passover feast every year? Why do we do all these kind of things that are so different from the people around us? And they ask, and it's interesting the way it's phrased here, it says they ask, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes? So not just like, what is it? What do we have to do? But why do we do it? So it says here, when your kids ask you the meaning of all these commands... They want to know why. Why should we follow God? So you can't love God with all your heart 
unless you know why it is that we actually do it. And what's interesting is it's the nature of youth to question why we're doing things, and this is actually good. I've mentioned before that every generation seems to despair about the next one, that the boomers were worried about Gen X and like, gosh, these guys are the end. Then Gen X, the millennials came along like, don't worry about us. These guys are going to ruin it for everyone. But now millennials, we, we already have the opportunity to look down on a generation. We can look down on Gen Z and see like, guys, I mean, you guys can take a lot of heat off us because you guys are a mess. But don't worry if you're Gen Z because soon enough you'll have your own generation to look down on and to continue the tradition, right? Because the truth is, every generation in its own way is fallen and sinful and a mess. But we feel better about ourselves when we look down at the, pre the one below us and be like, they're actually the worst, right? But here, Moses isn't saying, look down on the next generation when they ask why we're doing this stuff. It's actually a good thing. And it's an opportunity to explain why it is that you would follow this God and why it matters. And interestingly, his response is not to say, well, that's just the way that we do things around here, right? This is how we've always done it and how it always will be done. No, he, look at the response that he says to give them. He says, explain to them why. Explain why it is that we live like this. The reason is there is a God who lives. There is a God who redeems. There is a God who saved us, who is good, who actually took us out of slavery and gave us a good land, and we owe everything to him. And he's given us these statutes and these commands, not as some kind of punishment or as some kind of way of paying him back or as some way of earning things. He's given us these commands. What does it say in the text? For our good. Because he is a good God. He loves us and wants us to thrive. And this is why you can love him with all your heart. You don't just need to obey him so you can get stuff from him. But to know that if he commands you to do this or to not do that, it's because it's for our good. He's like a good heavenly father. But not only this, he says the, gospel, the, the, sorry, the message of God and the story of God should explain why it is that we do these things. To remember God's salvation story and to pass it on to the next generation. To be like, this is why we are passionate about following God, because he is a God who saves. Because the truth is, you can't get excited about following a God who just makes you do stuff and earn your way to him. Look what it says in Titus 3 verse 5 says he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The reason you can be passionate about following God is because of his grace toward us in Jesus. That in the gospel, God did not wait until you responded rightly or cleaned up your life so that he would accept you, but in your sin redeemed you and saved you. And notice here that the order is significant. In the story of Israel, God didn't wait until they obeyed his commands in order to save them, did he? He redeems them out of Egypt and then he gives them the commands. He saves and then he commands. That is always the pattern all the way through the Bible. And it's no different in the New Testament. That God saves and then he commands how to live so that we will know that what we are commanded to do is not so that we might earn our salvation, but that it would flow out of a love for God and the grace that he has poured out on us. See, the truth is no one gets excited about a wage. I've never been sitting around with a group of people and someone checks their phone and suddenly says, guys, I've got great news. I got paid again this week and on time. 
I've never been in, maybe, maybe you've been in a situation like that, but I've never been in a situation where someone got excited about being paid their wage. Now, truth be told, maybe we should be more grateful about these kind of things, but there's a rightness about the fact that if you get paid what you're supposed to get paid, it's kind of a matter of just fairness and justice. And in fact, to not get paid what you were owed is a matter of injustice. It's hard to get passionate about that. But something you may get excited about is a gift. When someone gives you something dramatic and life-changing that you did not earn or deserve, that's grace. And the gospel reminds us that God is a God of grace. He saves us not because of works done in righteousness, but because of his mercy. It was true of Israel then, and it's true of us now. That Israel were not saved because they were better than nations around them, but simply because God was merciful to them. And that they are called to love him because he is so worthy of love. Because what or who could be worthy, more worthy of love than the one who has done everything to save us? Than the one who we know now was willing to send his own son Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin in our place? See, it's grace that fuels a passion for God. To know the gospel story and to know how much we have been redeemed and saved that we might be a people who love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And so Moses here says to the people, when the next generation asks you, tell them why. Explain the story of God's salvation. Explain what he is like and that what he commands is for our good. That you might pass on not just the rituals or traditions, but the heart, a love for God based on his character, on who he is and what he has done. That he would be a God who is worthy of all praise. So as we think about this, we really are called to be a people who, are, who love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, aren't we? So let me ask you this question. When were you most passionate about God? When were you most passionate about God? Hopefully, the answer is right now. But most likely, or possibly at least, the answer was somewhere in the past. And maybe, given the last couple of years, that's to be expected. A pandemic, you know, a bunch of setbacks, all of the things that have kind of gone on, all of those things, in many ways, dim a passion. You know what? I experienced this myself. That these last couple of years have been tough, and I've noticed, even in my own soul, just a a dragging of the chain a little when it comes to just being passionate about who God is and what he has done with a desire to share the faith that I have with others. And I reckon over time, you probably would have noticed it in my preaching from time to time as well, that there is something about this last little while that has made it harder. But the truth is we are called to love God and for our passion for him to increase over time. It is the case that God is as worthy of our love yesterday as he is today as he will be tomorrow. And he calls us not to a half-hearted love for him, but a deep and abiding passion for his name. A love that is all-consuming. And so I want to ask you that. How is that going at the moment? How is your love for God? Do you know what's one helpful barometer? Just generally, not always and not for everyone, but of, of just how your love for God is going or a passion for him is, just as a, as a general barometer for it, is often how you sing. I don't know if it was the case at your school, 
But one of the most dispassionate songs I've ever heard in my life is the school, do you call it anthem? School song. I don't even know if they still do them, but I just, I just imagine being in here in Balmain on a Monday morning at school assembly, whenever that is, and you could, you could not see a more disinterested group of, now maybe you went to a school where like, where school spirit was really high, but I went to a public school. And at those kind of schools, if you ever belted out the school song, there was just one part of the song that everyone would get right into, partly because one of the teachers told us to. So out of mockery to them, everyone got extra into it, kind of like in a sardonic sort of way. But it was like, it was the least interested you could see a set of souls in singing a song. And it's because, to be honest, no one really cared. No one felt like this was something significant or that really mattered to them. On the inverse, when you see people sing, unless it's because they're intoxicated, it's because they're singing about something they really care about. And God's people have always been a people who were called to praise Him. Because in many ways it's a demonstration of His goodness, but it's often a barometer for our soul, isn't it? How near the truths of the gospel are to our heart at that given moment. How closely we are walking with him, trusting in him, experiencing his goodness toward us. We're called to be a singing people. And passion is catching, but so is apathy. And may it never be the case that we're a church where it's normal to kind of show up, half listen, half sing, and then walk out half or not changed at all. But it would be normal that God's people would love him with all their hearts, soul, mind and strength. And want to pass that on to one another. And now on this, I don't want to, as we speak about this, make you feel exhausted. Because there have been times where I've felt flat and then heard a sermon about being really passionate about God and it just makes you feel more flat sometimes, right? <laughs> and if, if that's how you're feeling right now, then do better and work harder. That's the answer. <laughs> now, if that is how you're feeling right now, don't be discouraged. And most of all, don't be resigned to it. It's true that every Christian, anyone who follows God for any amount of time, will go through ups and downs. Our passion will at times diminish. But the call is not to see this as kind of the lasting state or to be resigned to it, to be kind of like, well, I guess this is my life now. It was really great while it lasted when I was excited about God, but on with, I don't know, houses and hobbies now. That's my life, I guess. But to know that the God who redeems, the God who brought Israel out of Egypt, not Egypt out of Israel, be careful. The God who brought Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, the God who sent his own son to spend his blood for your soul, that God can do it again and can renew your love for him. It's possible to have a fresh experience of the grace of God again, a fresh movement of the Holy Spirit in your soul to enliven a love for God. So the call over this week is, what, what will we do to grow in our love for God? If it's true that we are called, just as God's people were then, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, and if it's also true that prosperity dims passion, what is it that we might do over the week to inflame a love for God and to be wary of ease and pleasure and the dimming effect it has on our soul? Here's one thing to consider doing over this week. Would you consider, and maybe this is already where you're at, if so, great for you, but would you consider, just from Sunday to Sunday, just setting aside, this is, you can't say screen time because that's part of work, but just 
any kind of um, discretionary screen time, just watching TV. And to bring into your life just something that's going to stir your heart and mind in regards to the gospel. Whether that's reading scripture more, or if you have a good pattern of just meeting with God day after day, then maybe reading other things, something that's going to stir your soul, remind you of God's grace and goodness toward you, and enliven a love for him. And then just, just over the week, just for one week to do it, and then at the end of the week to reflect on what impact that had on your soul. What impact did it have just taking out a few things that kind of just dim my soul and adding a few things in that enliven it and point me towards Christ and just see what happens. Maybe it'll be nothing. Maybe it'll be life-changing and you'll throw your TV out and have a burning ceremony for it. I don't know. Anything could happen over this week. But if it's true, if this passage is true, if God's word is true, and it is, that we are called to love him, and that's what we were made for, and that's where true joy is actually found, and that we're to be wary of living in ease, then maybe we're to do that and to see how God uses that. And maybe as we meet in groups over this week, to pray for one another, and to encourage one another, and to see what impact this has. Because ultimately... We are the generation that are charged with the gospel to pass it on to the next. And it's a beautiful thing that right now people are teaching my kids and the kids of City Light about the gospel. That here we have a variety of ages where people are passing on the gospel to the next generation. We are called to pass on not just the words and not just meaningless or routine traditions, but a heart to love God. So I'm going to pray that we would do that and that God would work powerfully through that and that we'd make the most of our time in the rest of this morning to praise God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are so good to us, that your grace covers all sin, that Christ was sent to atone for our sin to bring us into relationship with you. And so, Father, we pray that in a new way over this week we would see your grace toward us in Jesus, that we'd remember your salvation story even as your people were called to in Israel, but even as we have so much more seen in the gospel, that it might awaken in us a love for you, that we might not resort to doing deeds to earn your favor, but just to contemplate on the fact that you have saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And that it, like us, as we reflect on it, may lead us like your people in Israel to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. That we might enjoy you and your goodness to us, and that we might see that what you have commanded us to do is for our good. And so, Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Thank you.